Today's Into the Gloom episode is brought to you by Darklit Press. Keep your eyes peeled for their next release, which is a novella entitled The Devil's Mountain. From the author of React and Driving in the Dark comes a fresh slice of slow-boiling psychological horror that will chill you to the bone. Make room on your TBR for The Devil's Mountain by Jack Harding. It's out soon. And now, on with the show. The dark and macabre have intrigued us for years, but are their bewitching powers waning? The old greats such as Poe, Lovecraft, and Hitchcock have long since passed into the void. The masters of the 1970s like James Herbert and George Romero are gone. Stephen King and John Carpenter are in their twilight years. So where does that leave the current state of horror? The future is bright and author Thomas Gloom hopes to unveil this truth by discussing the genre's past and present. Settle back, get comfortable, and remember to leave a light on as you enter into the gloom. The human mind is both a blessing and a curse. When we have our sanity, imagination, and mental well-being under control, the sky is the limit for hope and joy. But when we get stuck in negative feedback loops, deal with the symptoms of mental illness, or feel powerless to harness the power of positive thinking, there are no valleys deep enough to describe the feelings of fear, panic, and hopelessness. The highs and lows of psychology are gulfed by a massive expanse. When all of this is taken into account, it's easy for me to say that I believe psychological horror to be one of the most terrifying subgenres in all of fiction. Books and film that fall under its umbrella tend to focus on mental, emotional, and psychological states to scare and unsettle its audience. It allows the story to get past our skin, through our skulls, and into our brains. Psychological horror often leaves a lasting impression. Allow me to call your attention to movies such as Jacob's Ladder, Seven, Identity, and even the more recent mind-bending A24 release, The Lighthouse. Within literature, Look no further than Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle, Stephen King's Misery, Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs, or 2021's smash hit and now Stoker Award finalist, Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke. On today's episode of the Into the Gloom podcast, we're discussing psychological horror. I'll be interviewing my spooky friend and fellow horror author, Mona Kabani. Join us, dear listeners, as we discuss the almost endless list of films and literature this particular subgenre has unleashed upon us and why we can't seem to get enough. Welcome, Mona. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I am good, and I'm really excited about this. I know that I had 
invited you on going back to like the summer of 2021. And I've been looking forward to this because this is one of my probably I'd say top five sub genres within horror. A good one for sure. <laughs> so let's just hit the ground running. I want to ask you, since you were the one that picked this particular topic, what specifically draws you to psychological horror? So I think, I think I've always just had an interest in psychology. I was like, I was a minor in um, psychology in college and I just always had like an interest kind of in how like the human psyche works and how there seems to be a lot of similarities in like the decision-making people go through if put in like the same situation from like conformity effects to, I don't know, other types of social experiments. And then um, I kind of put that in the horror sphere as being extremely interesting because you have these people in situations that you can't really replicate. Um, you know, if you're if you want to maintain ethics of psychological study, you can't really replicate someone being in a death-defying situation. So, I think it just always fascinated me, kind of reading or writing how I think people would react um, to these sort of like horrific situations, and I think kind of reflecting on okay, what would you do in that situation? Do you agree or maybe disagree with that? Like I, what they've done, especially if it like relates to other characters that are in the story. Um, it's just like really fascinating to me to kind of see like the human psyche play out in these terrifying scenarios that um, us authors create. And I just, I love that. Yeah, we're living in a very special time because not only do we have the internet, but now we're getting to the point where there are decades of these in-depth studies into like one of the topics that pops up a lot within the horror genre is serial killers. Mm -hmm. And I know for, for us, it's sort of one of those things where our entire lives, we've heard about serial killers, we've heard that term, but I, I remember being very surprised when I was watching Mindhunters on on Netflix and I was really coming to understand and realize that the study into serial killers and and especially just that term serial killers that's only been around since like the 70s oh yeah like things about criminal investigation and stuff that I find out that have not been around for like hundreds of years like for whatever reason I imagine they would be it's insane like how recent a lot of stuff is it's wild um, and I think it's cool, like, especially for us authors to kind of like read up on that and see like, okay, what's like new, what's happening? Like, what's like, how, what's, what's the difference between a serial killer case study in the eighties, depending on like where your setting place of your book now, like there's different technologies and all this other stuff. So there's just like a realm of like different things to explore, depending on like where and how you place your, you know, evil characters or whatever have you. Um, it's really fascinating. Yeah, because serial killers have obviously that terminology is fairly new but they've been around for forever but you know you go back a few hundred years and they're talking about these sorts of people and it's just like oh the devil made them do it or they're demon possessed or something like that and now we're starting to realize that i mean one of the things that pops up a lot is that monsters are rarely born they're usually created and especially when you look at many of the the well-known american serial killers they typically had these traumatic experiences traumatic events traumatic childhoods things that happened when they were still young and their brain was still forming and it it, it really just 
change the trajectory of their life and the whole makeup of their mind and their brain. And that sort of discussion, you know, I can't imagine people sitting around having that discussion in the 1800s or even maybe the, yeah. you know, the 1920s or 30s. Right. And what I think is even cool, like, especially with what you're bringing up at this point is the fact that like, yes, technology has changed our terminology, the way we view case studies and how we do everything has changed. But for the most part, and granted, I would like to preface this with I am not a psychological expert by any means, but to my understanding, for the most part, like the mindset behind people who do these evil things has not changed over the years. It's like a nature versus nurture. It's a traumatic event. It's a type of power play. It's like the motives or not necessarily the motives, but like the, the things that drive them to do said evils have always kind of maintained the same, same, which is why I think it's cool with psychology is that like, no matter what unless you have like a major shift like social media has put a major shift on mindsets of like attention spans and stuff but unless you have a major shift like that for the most part like psychological horror becomes classic tales and they're, they're kind of timeless because how someone thought a long time ago towards like their idea of power and being evil and whatnot will be relatively the same to how someone thinks now just like with a new environment yeah yeah and it's it's interesting that the the motives and the mindset hasn't changed. But even though we understand the brain better, we still have people even nowadays when they get caught that they are blaming it on demonic possession or alien right. abduction <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I, I know it's, it's a wild world out there. Yeah. But then that's like, that's cool. Cause then it's like throughout the years, like, essentially our relationship to people in like psychological horror or any psychological sphere kind of maintains just because we'll probably think or could relate or understand why things like that were done because we're humans too. Yeah. And I imagine that a lot of the, the science and the stances that we're taking now within a few decades, we're going to look back and be like, wow, we thought we had the whole picture and we, we didn't. Oh my God. I know. I think about that all the time. I'm always like, well, what's it going to look like like 10 years from now if it's been, you know, even just the 15 from now, like insane advancement. So it'll be interesting to see just even like how horror any genre just kind of evolves over the years, given new discoveries and like other things. I don't know. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In terms of the creative process, I have a listener question that was sent in and they asked, what does someone have to face in order to explore the full spectrum of psychological horror? I took this question as kind of like a, if you're getting into like that creative mindset or you're trying to like dive into psychological horror, like creative outlet. I think like at least for me, what I had to face when writing my books, I haven't written like a serial killer-esque book, so I can't like speak on that. But I think I had to like, dive into my own like bring up things of my own like psyche that I might have like quite liked buried or not necessarily buried but might have like not been as interested to share but I think there goes a lot to like putting your heart and soul into a written work 
And it's important to realize that like the authenticity that comes with your story comes a lot from your own experience as much as you like to try to like robotically replicate something that you've never experienced. It's like there still has to be a piece of you in it. Like with the bell chime, the main character had like a lot of anxiety and, and night terrors, for example. And it's like those are things that I very much suffer from, too. So it was a lot of like diving into that and being like, OK, how do I feel like when I'm in that emotional state? Um, and then that way you come out with something that's authentic, but also like a creative work that is a piece of yourself that I think is pretty cool. But it can be like very eye opening, but very I don't want to use traumatic because there was never really a point where I like didn't take care of myself enough to have put myself in a very like traumatic experience of having to go through like, how am I going to write this character? Um, but it can be quite, I don't know, difficult, <laughs> but it's well worth it. Yeah. I can definitely relate to that in my own writing. So much of my own life, you know, stories and things that I've experienced go into it, but then also just feelings and emotions. And I've noticed it's happened a few times, but the most recent time when I was writing the stories for stories with horror and heart volume two, I wrote this story called Breach, and I had no plans to be processing the things that I processed. But as I was going through that, I dug up some stuff from my past. And I, through writing that story, it helped me process some grief over the loss of my aunt who died of cancer when I was younger and my grandfather who also died of cancer and both of them, it was one of those things where they'd been a little bit sick and they'd seen some doctors, weren't sure what was, was wrong. And then as it got worse, then it was sort of, once they finally got the cancer diagnosis, it was really fast. And, and I was younger. And so I just, I didn't know how to process it. And so writing this story really, it dug a lot of that up. And like you said, it, it was, it was difficult, but when I was done, it felt like a weight had been lifted off of my shoulders. There was a sense of relief. And I didn't even know that that stuff was unresolved in my psyche. I hadn't planned to pull it out. It just came out of me as I was writing. And so I thought that was really cool. And the story, it's very personal to me, obviously, but at the same time, there's still just, you know, some batshit crazy horror stuff that I threw into there. But many of the things and even some of it, I, I, I wrote that story from first person point of view. And a lot of it is just me talking and, and pouring out my heart. And so I, I and I've experienced that in, in other times, too. But I'm sure that I'm going to do more of that in the future. And on one hand, it's a little bit scary, you know, because you're wondering, what do I have unresolved? What am I possibly digging up? But then on the flip side, like I said, it did really help me to process and to unload and to get a weight off of my shoulders. So, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm cautiously excited about mm -hmm. some more experiences like that in the future. Yeah, it's it's an extremely cathartic process is what I was I was thinking I was trying to grasp earlier and therapeutic. I think um, at least the bell chime and my current work in progress were both like came from points in my life where I was very much like, OK, I'm in like a lot of pain right now and I need to write it out and like to be able to like kind of uh, I don't know 
therapy is a verb, but therapy myself essentially into like feeling better over the ordeal. Um, Vanilla, her character, a lot of like her emotional state was pulled from like me being an only child and like sensing a lot of loneliness and whatnot. Although like a lot of the rest of the character is not like me at all. It's a very fantastical situation. Um, So there's always going to be some piece of your emotion or your history that you put into these works. And I think that it's very cool because it's like this can become your creative and therapeutic outlet. And I think there's something really incredible about that. Yeah, for sure. I feel that there is a certain level of realism that comes with the psychological horrors genre, which for me, it heightens the fear factor. How, how does that assessment vibe with you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe there's truth to that. I think that's what's so fascinating about um, psychological horror is just that whether it's a character study or you're kind of just overlooking at a group of characters in a horrifying situation, like there's always going to be your, mm, you're going to relate to characters in a certain way and kind of be like, oh, fuck, that would be like how I would react in a situation. Or maybe even like, I hope that's not how I would react in a situation. And it's like kind of scary to put your own mindset into these situations and whatnot so um i definitely think there's a lot of realism in it i think that's like what's cool about it but makes it like all the more frightening because it like a, it confronts you with what would you do and like what do you think your psychological state would be if you were in this position mm. that realism brings a stronger sense of empathy almost and that is at least for me, that's one of the things that I love about the horror genre is empathizing with the characters and putting myself in their shoes. But the more that I can empathize with the characters, the more that the horrors that they face are going to get under my skin and terrify me. And like you said, start asking the what ifs or what would I do in this situation, those sorts of questions. And that stuff can keep you up at night, you know, staring at the steel ceiling, uh, just just in your head or maybe, you know, staring at the closet or the doorknob and waiting for it to turn or open. <laughs> yeah, I think like for me, especially the situations where it's just like a group of people and you're with your family and your friends and then all of a sudden there's like serial killer. Someone's trying to kill you or animal or whatnot. And it's kind of like, I don't know, for me, the scariest thing I've ever like asked myself is if I were in this situation, would I be brave enough to save pe- the people that I love? And of course, like my immediate answer is going to be yes. But you really cannot know until you are in that situation and your adrenaline's high. So it's like things like that scare the crap out of me because it's like, I can be so certain about my loyalty to my, but my loved ones, but it's like, I don't know, some of the stuff you read is like really scary. So it's like, would it even be voluntary at that point? And I think that's what's cool about reading other like authors or, or books, uh, viewpoints on things like that like do you think it'd be voluntary do you think you'd be brave enough what that kind of background do you have to have do you have to have a hero complex to be of someone or are you kind of the underdog so i don't know i think it's it's cool to see like that wide array of like characters and stories and whatnot going into it but it's definitely like i don't know you just put yourself in those situations and you're like oh i I hope i would be brave enough so yeah because in those high intensity moments you're your body is just flooded with all these chemicals and whether it's cortisol or whether it's adrenaline. And at some point it's almost like instinct just takes over. 
And, and so like, like what you're saying is what, what is my true instinct? What am I made of? I know how I would like to act. I know how I hope I would act, but what happens when the rubber meets the road? I know. And you can't know, except for reading these situations and feeling your heart pumping and being like, oh, this is scary. I think I'd behave like this, but you don't know until, you know, you're getting chased by Freddy Krueger or whoever. So. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. And you bring up Freddy Krueger. That is, you know, he's one of the, the big names within the slasher genre, but I feel like when you look at him and compare him to Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers, there's a lot more psychological horror with Freddy Krueger because you caught me. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's in your dreams. You know, it's literally yeah. in your subconscious. It's in your unconscious mind. It's in your dreams. Mm -hmm. And unless you are some lucid dreaming expert there, we usually don't have a lot of control in our dreams and that, that can be really scary. Mm -hmm. yeah no I think I definitely like of all the slashers Freddy Krueger has always been my favorite just because I also like and from like the bell chime if you could tell I like have really awful nightmares sometimes so I was always like super interesting to me a character who comes into you not into wow that sounded really rapey um, a character that comes a character that comes to you in your dreams when you're not able to control those dreams to begin with um and I just, I think it's like, that's one of the most terrifying situations. Cause at least it's like, if I'm at a camp and I'm being chased, it's like, okay, I have survival instincts. I have my resources. I can like try to finagle my way out of it. But I just feel like if it's like in your dreams, like how do you escape from that? I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think that Freudian slip still fits with Freddie <laughs> because he's not, he's not consensually coming yeah. into people's dreams. And that's, what's really terrifying. They don't want him there. And I think for me, the thing that's so scary in the movies is that you don't always see people, you know, getting in bed and, and fluffing their pillow and get under their covers, closing their eyes and then the breathing change. It's usually someone just sort of nods off or they, they close their eyes for a few seconds and you think they didn't fall asleep. And then the mm -hmm. stuff starts to happen and you realize they are asleep. And then here yeah. comes Freddy. Ugh. Yeah, I know. He's a creepy one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, literal, literal nightmare fuel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so another listener question, and this one is a, a fairly common question that is asked of, of horror fans, but I love it because I love to hear people's stories and everybody's got a different answer. But for you, Mona, what got you into horror? So I, when I was younger, I used to be terrified of everything like dark rooms, my basement as most kids are, but like, like just terrified to the point of par paralysis. I couldn't hear a scary story. Even if it was a couple sentences, I couldn't watch a scary movie. Um, it was honestly really paralyzing. Cause I'd go to like friends birthday parties and they would be telling like bloody Mary stories and like literally just even overhearing it. I'd have to sleep in my, in my parents' bed for like a week because I was like so terrified um and I got like kind of made fun of it a lot for it a lot just because it was like it was just very like a physical reaction even like I was just like constantly like freaked out um and so I got really sick of being afraid all the time and I ended up just kind of trying to like extinguish that fear 
and exposing myself slowly and slowly in like I guess you could say a bit more controlled environments to horror and then like one day it just stopped scaring me like I, I don't remember which movie I think it was prom night or something I just like stopped being afraid like I watched it and I was able to fall asleep no problem and I was like holy fuck and then I got really obsessed because I was like this used to paralyze me with fear and now I can watch it and it's not necessarily that it doesn't scare me anymore I mean a lot of things don't like keep me up at night um like freaking out thinking there's something in my room although now I do love that feeling but it's just like I felt braver and it was like nice in the face of that and then I just I don't know I started like developing further appreciation for horror and what it was doing so like the rest kind of came after that but the obsession like initially grew from just the fact that I was trying to extinguish a fear and then I did and then I got obsessed with it (laughs) wow yeah you're (laughs) <laughs> you sort of had the experience of Kevin from Home Alone when he's just like, I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think it was funny because it wasn't like, gra- like it was kind of gradual, but there was a point where it was like the day before I watched something and I was like crying all night. And then the next day I watched something and I was like, hm, cool, not anymore. And it was just like, I don't know. I got really addicted to that feeling that I could like finally it's weird it's like it's weird to have a section of the world that feels inaccessible to you because of your own fears and I don't know like what other instance that could happen for people besides being afraid of horror or scary like watching scary situations but it was just like an awful feeling because it'd be like all my other friends would be watching it or whatnot um and I just like literally couldn't like I couldn't go to movies with my friends because I was too scared and whatnot so it was just like an awful feeling to like be shunned out of that portion in the world and then it was like now I've conquered it and now I'm obsessed and now it's like I want to like I don't know contribute to it and be more of a part of it but yeah it was it was a weird experience but I'm grateful for it now (laughs) yeah I I can relate to that I was the same way I I was scared of everything as a child and honestly I still am I have so many fears and so many of them are just stupid and silly and, you know, I have thalassophobia and here I am, you know, when when Jay Alexander made that call for deep sea horror, I was like, oh, I can write these stories because, you know, I have a million and one. It's just it's a it's a fear of of deep water. Oh, and oh God, dude, me too. But yeah. yeah, the a lot of the words that we use come from Greek. I mean, the, the verb to fear is phobeo. And that's mm-hmm. where we get phobia. And thalassa is the word for sea. And so mm. thalassophobia, the fear of the sea, the fear of deep water. And, and that's me. I mean, I can swim great. And that's not scary. You know, I've been on cruise ships and I, I can get on other ships. That doesn't scare me. But the thought of being one of my greatest fears is the thought of like being in the middle of the ocean in like a raft or God forbid, holding on to like a piece of wood with my feet dangling under me into the water, especially at night, you can't see what's under you. You know that there are thousands upon thousands of feet going down. And amongst that are living creatures swimming by you and you can't see them. That to me is just terrifying. Utterly terrifying. Yeah. Well, that's like a fear of the unknown, which is a deeply, I mean, Honestly, though, like the fear of not knowing what's under you, like that's very real. That's like a, a freaking Kraken's going to come up and like consume me whole. But I think it also like feeds a little bit into like the fear of the unknown, which is like a huge psychological subject or whatnot. So it's it's interesting to see like where certain things stem from. I think like the, the sea shit, though, is like 
we know that there are other creatures living deep and there's like what 78 isn't it like some high number like 78 percent of the ocean isn't like discovered yet so it's like i'm not (laughs) placing my bets on that one (laughs) like thanks but i'm not gonna swim in open waters so yeah yeah. and even the stuff that we do know is terrifying oh yeah i mean come on sharks and Oh yeah, I'm I'm scared of sharks. I I saw Jaws at way too young of of an age. I've told this story before, but I used to swim in my aunt's pool in Florida, and she had a big backyard pool. I mean, underground pool. It was 12 feet deep, and I remember whenever I would swim, if I was swimming with other people, it wasn't an issue. But when I was swimming by myself. <laughs> I would just jump off the diving board and then swim as fast as I could to the shallow end because in my mind, I I didn't know how pools worked. And I thought that a shark could bust through the side, like come through the wall into the pool and eat me. (laughs) So funny. I had a friend growing up who uh, was also terrified of sharks, like phobia, like she couldn't even see a picture. I don't know if she was like faking it in part, but I don't know. She seemed really scared to the point where it's like, if I mentioned like we were kids and we would like just get out of the pool or whatnot. And like, she would be like rinsing herself off in the shower and I'd be like, a shark's going to come up through the drain. And she like genuinely freaked out. Like she would like not be able to shower after that. So it's, I think like kids minds is another like completely different topic, but I also think like children's minds and horror um, is just like insane because it's like, as an adult, you're like, all right, here's how physics works. And therefore, you know, killer equals a and victim equals b and that's like the equation but it's like kids are like no sharks can come up through drains now and we're all terrified it's just like it's crazy how like the mind works like psychology between like a child too and an adult is like another whole thing that to me that's what makes the story it so good yeah because (laughs) it's the kids and and king does such a great job of wrapping all that into it even to the point where when the kids are experiencing these things that it is doing, like the the blood coming through Bev's drain, and then her dad comes in, he can't even see the blood. He's putting his hands in it. It's on it. It's on his hands, and he doesn't see it. And there's something really terrifying about that. And and I can understand that fear too, because maybe as a child you might experience something, and it's it's mysterious. You're not sure what it was, but at the same time, you don't even want to tell your parents because you're scared that they're going to think that you're making it up, that you're lying. Um, Or what if it is true? What if they believe you? And then that thing becomes even more real. Yeah. (laughs) I never outgrew a lot of my fears. You know, I'm, I'm scared of heights still. I was actually, I was talking to Spencer, Spencer Hamilton the other day, and I was telling him about how I still have this stupid fear when I, I go for a walk, I try to go out and walk in nature every single day. And whenever I walk past somebody, it doesn't matter if they are young, old, man, woman, it doesn't matter. But when they walk past me, I always have this thought in my mind that what if this is a crazy person? And as soon as they walk past me, they're going to turn around and grab me from behind. Oh, honey, I'm from Manhattan. Like, this is a constant fear I have because that shit happens. No, I'm kidding. But like, yeah, that's no, I feel that. I like can't sit next to the um, doors of a subway car. Like I choose not to sit like right at the edge because I'm always like, what if someone just like walks into the subway, but just like swings around and stabs me like from the door as they're like walking in. I don't know why. It's like crazy. It's like those intrusive thoughts you come up with. But yeah, insane. Yep. Because other yeah. people are unpredictable. That's horrifying. I don't know what yeah. you do. <laughs> well, I mean, once again, we're talking about psychological horror. 
we can sit here and we can talk about monsters and aliens and the the unknown things but at the end of the day we don't even have to create these fantastical mythos we can just look at human beings and we have thousands upon thousands of years of history showing us how sick and twisted and messed up humans can be and then you have those experiences in your life. I, in my own personal life, I just recently, back in November, I, I, I've been going through this experience of this guy that I've known for years that I, I considered a very close friend. And I thought that I knew him. And he, it was just like overnight, he changed. He just changed. And he's walked out on his, his wife and his kids, his, his parents, his family, like just shut everybody out of his life and has just, it's like he's a different person and it just happened from one day to the next. And it's just, wow. it's, it's heartbreaking and it's scary. But what it's left me thinking is, you know, of, of that thing that so many people say that you, you don't really, you think, you know, people, but you never really know people. And then something like this happens and it just brings all that back up. And so if that can happen to the people that, you know, on, on a deep level that you consider friends or family, mm -hmm then what about that person that you've never seen before that's walking towards you on the sidewalk or sitting next to you on the subway or knocking on your door and you see them through the people? I know. Yeah. Well, especially like honestly in New York, something that's really scary that's been happening is that we have people pushing people they don't know onto the subway tracks. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's, and there's, the, I think the scariest part about that is that there's like no motive. Like these people do not know the people that they're pushing. They're just like fucking doing it for shits and giggles or whatever the hell they're doing it for. I think that's horrifying. And like, yeah, it, I, I don't know. Just like the, the wealth of, that goes on in the human psyche whether it's by a close relationship or someone you don't even know like there's so much horror to be found in there i personally i don't think that i could ever live in a big city just because some of the stuff that you're talking about that you deal with and that you fear it makes much more sense for you to have those fears because that sort of <laughs> stuff is happening every single day in new york city but you know i'm i'm in some little place in oklahoma and this stuff <laughs> is not happening you know i'm in a very safe city crime is very low and i still have those fears what's so that I, like bro, <laughs> i i think i would be a nervous wreck like i mean yeah. kudos kudos to you for, for living there and for thriving there i just i don't think i could do it <laughs> it's it's a lot you gotta have a different mindset yeah <laughs> yeah well i mean you you have inspiration for psychological horror stories all the time though, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just like observe and then I'm like, that'd be a good, like, why is he behaving that way? I'm gonna add that <laughs> to my next piece. <laughs> so I, I didn't have this in, in the questions that I sent you, but I just wanna ask, cause it's, it's coming up, but are there, are there any instances of, of things that you have seen from a distance just as, as you are watching? that you have put into your stories? I think it happens for sure. Um, I think that there's a lot of instances where people behave in certain ways that upsets me and almost going back to like that therapeutic part it's kind of if I put them into my story it's kind of a way to like reason with them and try to like understand why they did this. Um, I try to be very like empathetic when I'm analyzing people and like why they do the things they do. 
And I think that like writing about it is a great medium for getting that out. And like, it's also once again, like an experience that adds a lot more authenticity to your work. And like the more, not to like obviously plagiarize off life, but the more like real life experience you have in something, I think the more relatable it's gonna be to character, to readers, because they probably experience similar situations and whatnot as well. Yeah. Um, so I think it definitely happens. I think it happens because I wanna like try to understand, I wanna make sense of it, or maybe I just wanna write it in a situation where I can get like revenge off of it or something. But I think like things like that definitely happen. I mean like you have writing at your fingertips it's like it's the best way to like get out your emotions and like make something cool out of it yeah i i like what you what you said about you know maybe you you had this negative experience with someone and you rewrite it in a way that you can be in control and and maybe even have a a, a good ending come from it and you know i brought up lucid dreaming earlier and i know that that is something that people who suffer from really bad nightmares, crippling nightmares, especially repetitive nightmares, that lucid dreaming can help with that because psychologists say that, you know, lucid dreaming for those that are maybe listening that don't know, it's when you become conscious of the fact that you are dreaming while you're dreaming and that gives you control in a dream. And so if you're having a reoccurring nightmare and you can get into a, a position of lucid dreaming, then you can face that fear and conquer it. And a lot of the times when people do that, the nightmare stops. Mm -hmm. And and so it's almost like you're you're doing that same sort of concept in your writing. Yeah, I think it's also good for the reader because like I was saying before, I think a lot like the instance with your friend who you'd known for such a long time and then suddenly changed into a different person overnight. Like I've had that that issue as well. Like I think that's a common issue that breaks a lot of people's hearts and a lot of people can't necessarily understand. And I think it's cool to write about it because then I can read your work about the person that you've known for so long and suddenly turn into someone else and relate to that and be like, yeah, that happened to me and it really hurt me as well. And it's nice to like, see this kind of either turned into like some sort of happy ending or maybe even like a re revenge plot for me to just get a little bit of that like oomph that I like wanted out of the situation that I never got closure on um so I think it's like I don't know don't like discount what your experiences are and like what you've like experienced and witnessed in other people as something that you shouldn't write about because a lot of people have like experienced those things too and it's like it's very nice to like read about and like relate to yeah and see sure. that you're not like alone in that yeah yeah you mentioned plagiarizing life and i am i am guilty of that to the nth degree <laughs> like i mean i just i put so much into my writing of real life stuff whether it's stuff i've witnessed or experienced myself i don't know you always hear the the old adage write what you know and so i there's a lot that I know that I haven't put on paper yet. So I'm just going to keep rolling with that for a while. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the best fuel, honestly. Yeah. I think my work that's going to come out after this one, like my second in line um, is like fully taken from real life events of like a situation that happened to me that I was just like, this was entirely fucking weird, but I'm going to use it. So it's not, doesn't feel like a total waste of my time. And I'm going to add like an insane twist. So at least, you know, I can, do something with this experience but um no i think it, it those are like the coolest things to do yeah yeah i read a book last year it was a non-fiction book i can't think of the author or what the book was called but it was <laughs> it she's a she's a stand-up comedian and essentially the book was just about 
telling stories and how to how to tell good stories and how to keep people engaged. And essentially what she was saying is that every single day that you go into life, you are going to have good experiences and bad experiences. And when you have the good experiences, enjoy them. When you have the bad experiences, be happy about those too, because now you know that those will be awesome story fuel. I think that this is like something that we're really blessed in the writing community or honestly like any type of like artistic outlet community is the fact that like I no longer think of my bad experience like obviously in the moment I'm going to give myself the time to like weep about it and be like this sucks that it's happening to me but then it's like you know I like get over it a little bit more and then I'm like let me a use my writing as a therapeutic outlet and be like have fuel to like come up with these cool stories because sometimes I'll just take a thing that's like okay, I didn't like that this situation happened. Let me start like writing a few characters and then they turn into like this whole cool world of things. And I think that that's just like a really cool blessing that we have as like artistic people to be able to like create something about out of like really annoying situations in life that everyone deals with. Yeah. When, even when you're talking about not even writing, just telling stories, you're, you're with your friends, you're at a party or whatever. Usually, especially if you're getting back with maybe old friends, from, from the past that you used to party with, used to hang out with, used to do a lot of things with, a lot of the stories that you tell are the stories that when they were happening, they were bad, they were embarrassing, yeah. they were horrible, but now it's hilarious. Yeah. And you just- I can't rebel. believe what just fucking happened to me. <laughs> Listen yes. up, I have some tea for you. Yeah. 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 And now we get to write that shit. And, and, and people, you know, they eat it up because like you said, the human experience is so vast that the odds are the the thing that you have struggled with is something that somebody else has struggled with. The thing that you has pained you, if you can put a little bit of a funny twist on it, then somebody else who reads it, they can laugh about it, you know, now that it's passed. Yeah. And yeah, we, we never run out of material. Nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Another listener question. How did the concept for your novel Vanilla develop in your mind? So Vanilla was an interesting one. Honestly, probably the totality of Vanilla first coming into conceptualization to her being published was like three years. Like it was insane. So she was initially written as a short story character where I just like I had been called I'd been catcalled on the street and I was like really pissed off about it Um, because it happens like all the time. And it's just like, it's honestly wretched behavior. And I wanted to write a character that was like a very like feministic, very like um, feminine energy, like a little bit like revealing, but like doesn't deserve to be catcalled type character that just like absolutely annihilates men if they catcall her. And like, that was how she started. And if you've read Vanilla, it's completely different than how she was. What ended up happening was that I, I really liked her a lot, just her like demeanor and her her character. And I wanted to write an origin story for her. Um, and NaNoWriMo was coming up. So I was like, all right, well, let me put her in this situation and X, Y, and Z and see what happens. And I just kind of started writing. And she evolved into something like very different, but something still like feministic in my mind was kind of her initial like point. Um, to kind of show like the female experience in this like strange way with this like very common horror trope. Um, and so she like went through a lot of like revision and, and of evolution, I would even say to become what she is now. But like, I 
like do not regret at all like her start to finish like I really love how she's like fleshed out now and I'll probably return in the future writings with her to that kind of just like <laughs> annihilator of anyone that cat calls type of ordeal um now that her characters like her origin story is fully fleshed out but like yeah she like fully evolved which I think is cool that like the stories can evolve so much like that depending on your experience and whatnot but yeah start to cool. finish totally different yeah <laughs> yeah well there is a little a little plug and a little excitement for those that enjoyed vanilla maybe there is more vanilla in their future <laughs> i i personally i haven't read it yet it's on my ever growing mile long tbr but i did read the bell chime last summer I, I went out of town for a couple of weeks and was in a hotel and I, I brought a couple of books with me and the bell chime was one of them. And I really enjoyed it. It was, it was an ominous and dizzying psychological thrill ride. And on the back cover, you say that you're obsessed with psychology and the human condition. How did those obsessions play a role in you writing that particular book? So I think it goes back to just like the whole extreme fascination. Um, and like, once again, I studied, I studied psychological or psychology. I was about to say I studied psychological horror in college. Could you imagine that'd be a sick course? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would teach that in an instant. That'd be so cool. But um, I studied psychology in college and I don't know, the bell chime kind of started off as like a therapeutic sort of thing with one of these night terrors that I had. And I fleshed out these characters and I wanted to like see what these characters would behave like if under the influence of a night terror or perhaps an estranged reality. Um, so I think just like a lot of that interest played into that whole ordeal. And I think honestly, like writing it was like experiencing it because I hadn't exactly planned it. So it was like kind of fun to take each step with those characters and like see how their psyche evolved with the story um, and come up with something that like ended up really cool and I like was not planning at all. So, yeah. Cool. I, you mentioned Night Terrors. There's another big fear of mine. Now, it's not something that I say that I, I won't say that I struggle with it because I haven't in years, but I have, when I was in college, I had a few experiences where I had sleep paralysis mm -hmm. and that shit is terrifying. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I didn't know what it was when it was first happening. I can't remember if I got online first or I talked to somebody who told me to get online, but I, I, I did get online and I started looking into what was happening. And then I read people's stories and people have similar experiences. But for me, I was laying there in bed and I couldn't move. I was awake. I was conscious. My eyes were open, but I was just looking up at the ceiling and I felt like there was this dark presence just right, like its face was right here, right next to mine, but I couldn't look at it, but I knew it was there. And it lasted for just a, a couple minutes, which felt like an eternity in the moment. And then it just went away, you know, and it sort of melted away, but it was so scary. And then I had another experience and it wasn't beside me, but it was across the room and just right outside my peripheral. I remember just, I, I was so terrified that it was going to happen again. Then this 
Netflix, it was like a documentary about sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. And I remember starting to watch it and I got about 15 minutes into it and I had to turn it off because I felt like (laughs) I am going to trigger another experience like that and I don't want it. So I guess for you, you've had some experiences like that and you decided to write about it. So can I ask, since you wrote this stuff out in the bell chime, has that been something that you've you've had an experience with since or did you sort of exercise that demon? Dear listeners, I assume you're here because you love scary stories. Reading horror is a great way to experience empathy and to emphasize marginalized voices. Today, I'd like to call your attention to Slash Her, a women of horror anthology. Edited by Janine Pipe and Jill Girardi, this publication brings together 21 women from across the world to offer their unique voices and perspectives on the slasher genre. I read this book cover to cover and highly recommend it. Whether you enjoy elements of revenge, lust, serial killers, or the supernatural, there's something here for everyone. Support the voices of women in horror, grab a copy, and be sure to leave a review. Slash Her is available in paperback and ebook editions. But be careful, dear listeners. These ladies know how to conjure up the scares. Don't blame me if you find yourself losing sleep. <laughs> and now, back to my interview with Mona Cabani. Thankfully, I've never had sleep paralysis. That does oh. sound horrifying. I can't imagine like not being able to move, um, especially when I have... My issue is that I have extremely vivid dreams um, that come when I'm extremely stressed out. They used to be really bad when I was younger. And I think it was part of that, just like kind of being afraid of everything in the world. And it's funny because I, my dad actually had a therapist friend of his um, say that an idea for how to get rid of them would be to wake up. And this was in high school would be to wake up at one in the morning or when you think you'll be at the peak of the, the terror and write it down immediately after. And he was kind of like, it'll be a way for you to like, separate the reality from your dream and kind of like better cope with them or whatnot to like write it down and kind of expunge them. So I had done that for a good period of time until they stopped. They would be less frequent or just less vivid, like not as, as annoying with the bell chime though. I had a night terror like two and a half years ago. I think it was, I I think the bell chime took me about like six months or so, eight months to write. Um, And I had like a really bad night terror that just like brought me to like the brink of my survival instincts. And it was like really like traumatic. And it it felt like I really was like, I don't know. Sometimes when you wake up from a night terror, you're kind of like, okay, this was like, this is going to ruin my day. Cause now I'm going to think about it. It makes me scared. When I woke up from that one, I was like, I literally thought I was dying. Like I didn't think that, like I thought I was like in real life, these things were happening to me. Um, So it was really severe. I was like depressed for like literally like four days to a week afterwards. I just was like, very like my friends could tell I was very like like a dark cloud of just like sadness kind of because I just like was freaked out and so um I kept being encouraged by one of my friends uh to write it out and maybe that would help so I wrote it out and I wrote it out into like a character that became the first part of the bell chime which is actually what I used um when I first started writing to promote myself on Wattpad um 
that was like part of my like hey i'm a new author in the world like read my stuff it's free and it was you know like probably one of the most vulnerable pieces that i'd ever write but um that was what became that and then i, I was still the story just like continued to stay around in my head i actually felt much better after writing it out um mm. the night terror felt like less worse i felt like i had more control over it um which i think is a huge part of being able to like write out those things um and the story stayed in my head and then i wanted to know okay where do these characters come from why is this happening and so like i fleshed it out into what it is today um but yeah that one was that one was from a pretty like severe night terror that honestly like helped me get over it very well your friend that encouraged you to write it down have they read the bell chime yeah that's awesome yeah, yeah. that's so. really cool yeah, we, we need we need friends like that that mm -hmm. will encourage us to write books, write stories that we can eventually publish. I mean, when you yeah. when you started writing it down, when they were encouraged you, were you initially just writing it out sort of like a diary just to help yourself? Like, was there any conception that, oh, maybe I could turn this into something? That's a good question. I think. I had initially written out the terror and then I was kind of like, this doesn't feel good enough. I need to like add it that like a character is involved in it who would essentially be me um, and has like basically finds a way to like have control over the situation, even though that doesn't really what exactly happens in the bell chime. But um, I had to like add X, Y, and Z to it to like feel better. And then it kind of just like took a growth of its own. And then I was like, well, this could be a really good like short story idea. So I like went into that and then it became really popular as a short story idea. And then I was like, well, I'm still stuck with the story. So maybe I could develop it into like, so I had no idea that it would like be successful. I honestly, even when I was writing it, I was like, this might not even turn out like into something I want to publish in the end. Um, mm. And then I just like ended up, I don't know, it turned out, I don't know how stories it's cool like to see how stories kind of just like do it for you almost in a sense and it's like so like I think it's such an amazing experience um I started with one fleshed out short story another like smaller short story and then like a random idea and it became what it is but yeah I don't know it, it wasn't necessarily intentional to start with but it like the intention slowly started building over the course of it and then it became what it is now there's a pretty famous quote from Stephen King where he said that writing is a form of hypnosis. And I, it sounds like you agree with that. I know I agree with that because <laughs> I've experienced it. You mentioned NaNoWriMo earlier. I've only taken part in NaNoWriMo one time. And the one time that I did it was when I wrote what would eventually become my novel voodoo child and at the time after i finished nanowrimo and i stuck with it 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 took maybe only a couple of weeks after nanowrimo ended so i wrote the whole initial story in about a month and a half but i was not happy with the ending i was trying to do something that i i just i didn't pull it off i didn't pull it off i saw I don't know if you are a Stranger Things fan. Have, have you seen Stranger Things? Stranger so, Things. you know, at, at the end of season three, that there is a letter that is written and read. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I sort of, I wanted to, to recreate that and, mm -hmm. and have it be just like this emotional wallop. 
And I just, it, it didn't work. It didn't work with the story that I had. And so I was just sort of frustrated and I set the, the story aside. But then I was watching Anthony Bourdain and he is like, he's just always been one of my heroes. I, I just love his, his storytelling and his love of people and culture and his curiosity. And I was, I was watching an episode and I just had this idea. I had this idea that fit with my story and it was just one chapter and I wrote it out. And what ended up happening is that writing that out gave me a number of little Easter eggs and connections that I went, I then went and sprinkled throughout the rest of the story. And so I took my final six chapters and just completely scrapped them and wrote eight new chapters for the ending. And those chapters are what I ended up publishing and releasing. And I'm, I'm very, I'm proud of that, but it's so different from what I initially wrote. And I had no plans, no concept. And of all things, listening to Anthony Bourdain talk about food and culture, and it just set off these explosions in my mind. And it was, it was like I was being hypnotized by Tony and, and, and I'm grateful for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think your stories will tell you what they need, even if you want them to go somewhere else. And I think the universe definitely helps you. Like for sure, when I'm writing something, I'm, I'm very much of a pantser. Like typically I'll just know how I want it to start and how I want it to end. Sometimes I won't even know the characters. I'll literally just start like writing. And then I'm like, this character needs to be in here as well. Let's introduce them also. So, and then, you know, I'll, I'll watch stuff and, and whatnot and absorb other things and be like, oh, that concept would be really cool if I took it and altered it in this way and put it in my book. And so it's kind of cool how like the stories help you out and the universe like adds to it in a sense. Yeah. I think that as, as writers and, and just artists, creators in general, we never fully grow out of that childlike wonder and curiosity that you were talking about earlier. And, and we're sort of just like sponges. And I know that for me, it can be a song, it can be a TV show, it can be a movie, it can be a, a, a piece of graffiti, whatever the thing might be that well, like you said, I'll start thinking about it. Well, what if this, or what about that? Or how could this fit into a story? And then it's off to the races. Yeah, magical. <laughs> yes, it is. It is magical. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Back to the bell chime. I want to read a quote because I, I found this following quote from your book to be very intriguing and, and, and beautiful in its own morbid way. <laughs> so I, let, let me read this quote, and then I want to ask you about it. The quote says this, you could have played his scars like a xylophone. Each one was so grotesquely raised. A blind person might have even been able to read them like Braille. If they did, they would have read that these scars were indeed from a car accident. Only they didn't appear until some time after. There's a lot of psychology in this line. Yeah. It, it's clear that you love psychology and that you've studied it <laughs> and, and you've got some groundwork laid. I've got my own thoughts, but as, as the author, I'd like to hear from you what you were hoping people might take away from these specific sentences. So I think when I set out to write my characters, I wanted to portray them in a very realistic way. And I think at the time I was 
a little annoyed with like romance in general as like a genre and as a concept and whatnot of putting I think I was in like a shitty relationship at the time too which sorry if any of my ex-boyfriends are watching this and wondering which one it was but um I just was like really annoyed with the kind of ruination we've done with romance and with relationships with other people of which we like idealize them and think that they're perfect and that they have survived the things that they have survived through and it doesn't affect them still and all this stuff and just like this ideology we put onto other people and then we let it seep into our own relationships and whether it's like romantic or, or platonic of these expectations we want from other people and I, I don't know I just saw like a lot of that shit just like ruining things and it sucked so when I when I went out to write the bell chime I really wanted to portray these characters and their relationship in a way that seemed realistic to me and how I think people are and people are flawed and I think that's like the beauty of humanity is the fact that you know there's parts of you that are extremely beautiful but there are parts of you that are extremely flawed and I think that like adds to the perfection that is the human so I was really determined to make sure that was portrayed that you know they're a little toxic they're a little too loving they're a little like everything that you want and not more so that was just important to me and then also especially throughout the course of the bell chime you're focusing a lot on the main character who is obviously going through something very severe but I wanted to remind the audience too and just kind of myself as well that it's not like always about the main character and there are other people surrounding even if you're thinking that it's all about the main character or whatnot that are going through their own things and that like everyone's fighting a demon even if the demon in front of you seems the biggest at that point and you have to like reflect on other people's demons and you know, it's it's not fair to like necessarily have your own and completely disregard anyone else's. So I think I just like really wanted to like maintain that kind of integrity of like every human is a human, even if they're just like a, a side character or whatnot. Um, and they all have their own things that they're going through. And that's like extremely important. Yeah. And you talk about scars in that line and essentially every scar tells a story there's a story behind that scar and when we try to hide them or cover them up essentially we're lying about our past and that character i i honestly like he he's toxic but i had like a really deep love for him just because it, it's exactly what you're saying it's like there are scars but you're trying to hide it and i think a lot of like the toxicity that came out with that character was a byproduct of them trying to hide it and it's mm. it's kind of just like paying attention to things like that that i don't know i wanted like some type of like real life like hey when you're done reading this realize that like everyone goes through things like this and like we should all be more like sensitive and empathetic and kind to one another and allow ourselves spaces to like speak out on certain things and, and whatnot because you know it sucks to be like alone in that yeah Another thing from this book, it just I, I just remembered it. It popped into my head. A number of episodes ago, I had Brianna Morgan on, and we were talking about cult horror, but we also at, at some point were discussing her her book that had just come out at the time, Mouthful of Ashes. And so we were talking about sex in the horror genre and how we wished that there was more of that how you know in the 80s it seemed like it was everywhere it was in every horror novel that you read and then it sort of went away but in in the bell chime you have this sex scene but yeah 
not, when you're talking about being upset with, you know, the romance genre at that point and stuff. And it just, it clicked in my mind because what you did with this scene is it wasn't so much just like in your face, just, just explicit sex, the way that you did it, it was very literary. And essentially you, you wrote it as if you were talking about a garden being planted and it was just, it was very unique. I, I personally, I've never read anything like that. And I remember I, I messaged you and I messaged Spencer and was like, this is really, really cool. And, yeah. and so bravo for, for doing that Thank and you. using your anger against the romance drama, but still bringing <laughs> some romance into it and, and putting your own twist on it. You know, it's, it's, it's so fucking funny to me honestly that that scene has been one of the most brought up scenes in that book to me and I think it's fantastic I'm glad that like everyone's connecting with a portion of it and it like truly makes me very happy what I find so funny about it though is that when I had first started writing that scene I did first try to start writing it as sex like as just like explicit sex and I was like I can't write this like honestly like props to erotica horrors like that shit's hard it is very difficult to like write in a way that's very like fluid and nice to read something that's very explicit so then I pivoted into like well what am I good at well imagery and then I was kind of like well what am I trying to portray throughout the whole thing of this anyways there's like this overlapping overarching theme of flowers and like blooming and you know taking care of something and if you don't it's like festers and dies and stuff like that so I ended up because of just like my inability to write it in the way I initially intended writing it as kind of like this garden scene and honestly it helped me like because of the imagery like get out a lot more emotion like put a lot more emotion into it because it was like a type of writing that I'm more comfortable with so I was able to like mm. finagle that better um but it's it's just funny because it's like to me it was like when I had first written it I was kind of like oh this is such like a like people aren't gonna appreciate this because I had intended it to do this other way and I just couldn't succeed at doing it this other way so I had to slap together this like way that I know how to do it and then it's funny because it's like so many people have reached out to me being like this is like such a beautiful scene and like completely taking it and this is what's so great about being a writer and get, passing your work on to like readers is that it becomes their own and their own experience um that they were able to like experience what i had kind of intended and like i don't know like even more and I, it was just nice <laughs> it's interesting how stuff works out you know yeah, yeah you could have just skipped over that got frustrated and taken it out but instead you went with like you said a, a writing style that maybe you were more comfortable with more familiar with and I don't know it just it works it doesn't seem out of place in the story I mean right. overall the the book is it's psychological horror but it definitely is very literary I I thought I I thought that your your writing has has a, a nice literary bend to it and I I like okay. that sort of stuff you know I'm a big fan of John Langan I I like that you know Spencer Hamilton is mm. is really good at that we actually he was he was the first episode of of this podcast he came on to talk about literary <laughs> horror yeah and at the time I hadn't read your book yet so I, I I don't think we discussed it unless maybe he brought it up. I can't remember. But you managed to fit a lot into a, you know, a, a novella. It's not it's it's not a a, a thick a, a thick yeah. girl like like vanilla. Like vanilla, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. I'm I'm envious of. Actually, my current work in progress, I was I was I 
this is just a recurring theme. Uh, this happens on every episode. I'm like, I was talking to Spencer the other day, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, he, he asked me, he said, what is, what's the longest work you think you'll ever write? And I was like, I don't know, but I would at some point, I'd like to write something over a hundred thousand words. I just, I, I really would like to do that. And I don't know if I'm going to get there with this current work in progress, but I do feel like it's going to end up being the longest work that I've, I've done to date. And I'm, I'm currently rereading it. And so I think that's playing a part. And I've just, over the past year, I've read a lot of novellas and a lot of short story collections and anthologies. And I, I've been shying away from longer works. And so I'd forgotten what it's like just to, fall headfirst into something that is so broad and epic and expansive. And I really love it. I love it so much. And so I, I think that that's sneaking into my writing right now. Yeah, I think um, whether it's, I don't know, I think like the whole, whether it's short a story, like the, I'm trying to think of a good way, not that there's a wrong way to say this, but more so that we like imply, oh, one book is better than the other because it's thicker, thinner or whatever. Like, I think when I first got into the scene um, with writing and stuff, I don't like I, I heard a lot of stigma from some random people against novellas being like, oh, this is just a half ass work. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like they're fully trying to write out a novel. Um, and I heard it multiple times. And I think I even fed into it in the beginning, too. I was like, because I had come from just being tradition only exposed to traditional publishing to which i was like this is the end all is traditional publishing um and kind of letting myself think that way as well and then i started exposing myself to more novellas and I was like, oh shit this is a pretty great way to tell a story yeah. so i think like the length like for me at least when i know when i write it's i don't really ever decide on the length it like the story kind of decides for itself and not to say that there's a right or wrong way of course to do anything because i would never intend or mean that um i definitely think that everyone has their own way and should like stick with it but like for me at least like i kind of just let the story do what it's going to do and i definitely sometimes have an idea of being like okay well this is what i think is going to happen but i'm not going to like force it to maintain in that word range if so so i don't know it's it's definitely interesting and i think that like the novellas that are novellas are like meant to be novella size and the epics that are epics are meant to be epic size is essentially like the moral of my story but yeah yeah for sure and i hear what you're saying and i've heard a lot of the same things but the right now within the horror genre the novella is having a bit of a renaissance and we're even you're talking about the you know traditional publishers are starting to push out novellas within horror and i think that it's just like you said there are a lot of stories that are meant to be novellas and they should be written that way and and as a writer you usually you kind of know once you get into it and honestly the my current work in progress I wanted it to be a novella because I wanted to submit it to Cemetery Gates for, uh, you know, Sadie Hartman's call. But I got about 10,000 words into it and I realized this is a bigger story and I would be, I'd be missing Doing an out. injustice. Like yeah. Not to, yeah. And so I'm no, just I'm giving into it and it's going to be longer and it'll be as long as it needs to be. Yeah, no, exactly. And I entirely like, like it needs to be what it needs to be. Like I've definitely written for like the Tor Nightfire um, submission that we were talking about earlier um, in the group chat. 
Uh, but <laughs> I, I, sorry, I was like, well, they're not going to know yeah. what we're talking about. I had it. I was like, st- I started writing that and I really liked the idea of it. I, I didn't like have an, like a, any of the middle part written out, but I started writing it and then I knew like tour required a certain amount of words to be met. I was like, fuck, it's not going to meet that. Like for sure. It's not going to meet that. And I was like doubting myself a lot. But then as I kept writing it, like doubled what I had like thought it would be like just naturally, like not even me trying to force it. So I think like the story is going to be what the story wants to be in the end. You just, you know, need to help yeah. it along. Yeah. yeah. If it's hungry, feed it. When yeah. It's exactly. there you go. Stop feeding it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And shout out to the, spooky friends group chat (laughs) (laughs) i know yeah i was like wait we didn't mention it on this podcast my bad in the group chat (laughs) yeah it's uh i mean up to this point the the people that have come on are all all from from there actually the next episode is is finally going to be it'll be my my first time interviewing someone that isn't in our group and i'm i'm excited and nervous surely <laughs> oh, fantastic yeah you you guys have been priming the pump it's it's a lot easier to interview y'all because i feel like i already know you but <laughs> if, if if this podcast is going to continue and grow i i guess i gotta i gotta talk to some some people outside of my comfort zone <laughs> this is we, we can move on from the bell chime after this but i want to ask one more question concerning your opening chapter it's a another fear of mine it's a literal nightmare of mine i'm i'm not claustrophobic per se but your vivid descriptions in this chapter sure as hell made me feel like i was and it reminded me of a short story from stephen king's everything's eventual collection entitled autopsy room four so can I ask, A, have you read that story? And B, where did you get your idea for that opening chapter from? Yeah, so I did, have not read that story. The idea for the opening chapter did come from that night terror. I don't think I was like, I didn't like see myself when I was having the night terror from above. Like I was very much in my own body. But I think when you're like having a night terror you know, like those memes about like when you're trying to fight in a dream and it's just like really slow motion or whatnot, like you feel like you have like no control of your body or you're compressed or there's like a lot of pressure around you or whatnot. So um, I wrote out the night terror and what I thought was happening, which was that I was like strapped down or like wrapped or whatnot, like basically like a cocoon and like being tortured and whatnot. Um, so it did stem a lot from that. And I think like claustrophobia is a very easy thing to feed into the only person and maybe he will like defy me in my opinion of this, but the only person I know who isn't claustrophobic or doesn't get claustrophobic is Jeremy because he like caved out, or I don't know what you call it when you go through like those tight caves, like he's just like totally down for like, let's go on the cave hunt. It's going to be a really small circle and you're going to just fit through and I'm like, and there's crickets and shit in there. I'm like, no. We have like so many discussions on like just how absurd he is, but that's like the only person I know that doesn't like fear claustrophobia, but like everyone else, I think to some degree, I mean, he probably does. I don't know. I'm not speaking for him, but uh, Jeremy, I'm (laughs) I'm calling you out. But um, I think that like claustrophobia is like a very easy thing to relate to as a fear because it's like no one 
no one wants to be like in that situation where you like you can't control your body like it's it's part of like just like the physics of the situation is like you like in a sense you cannot control your body because you cannot move it and it's just like that pressure and like it's even if you're not like necessarily being suffocated it does feel suffocating so obviously per the way i'm describing it it was a very traumatic experience to have during a night terror so it just like evolved from that and i obviously for the purpose of the storytelling embellished it um quite a bit with uh i mean just like it being in like the doctor's office and shit like that yeah it, it stemmed from that night terror and just like fear of claustrophobia in general yeah have you seen the movie the descent yeah i have i love that movie but fuck it's so scary yeah yeah dude any oh my god any like i like just you just watch it like i don't even i don't even need them to go in i just see a person standing with intent staring at like a cave that's like the size of their body and i'm just like don't don't do it ma'am i'm already freaking out for you like yeah i just yeah yeah I've been caving a few times before. It wasn't extreme, what, what I would call extreme caving. And I wasn't getting on, you know, my belly and crawling through crevices or anything like that. Um, but I, you know, I really, I, I enjoyed it. It was really cool. It's just, it's, it's a unique experience. Then I saw that movie and <laughs> it That'll ruin it. <laughs> yeah, I just I feel like I would go into a cave now and just have a panic attack. Honestly, yeah. the first time in my entire life that I ever had a panic attack was the first night that I watched that movie. And I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was going on. And I, I know now. But oh, man. Yeah, that movie, that movie's scary. I re I rewatched it. I think maybe last year, maybe the year before. I, I don't know. Sometime in the last couple of years. Yeah, that that's a good horror movie. That yeah. shit is terrifying. Yeah. Another interesting thing about the bell chime um, in relation to like claustrophobia is the elevator scene in that um, Lauren part is like th- that elevator is literally the elevator of my building. Oh. And it's like very tight. It's very small. I was in that elevator like two months ago or a month ago it wasn't that long ago and as it's like descending and i'm by myself with like a shit ton of garbage because i'm taking out the garbage from our apartment the lights just like turn off and i'm just like in pitch black and i was literally like i i put myself in this situation i manifested it by writing this fucking story and now it's happening to me and i was like thank god i don't have a freaking switchblade on me right now and someone doesn't get in at the same time i was it was just like so like freaky i was like i did this to myself i like fully accepted my fate so it's like that elevator is extremely claustrophobic. Um, yeah, but what to, what happened? Oh, the, it's just fucking wonky. Like we literally have to contact our um, like management people like five times a week because we're like the elevator's broken again today. It's it does weird things. It like opens on like the second floor and then just stays open and then like doesn't move or it'll like open halfway through. I've had like delivery men come to come deliver food or even my boyfriend come up to like see me and then I just hear them like stuck on the fifth floor going like uh and I'm like sorry it does that like it'll start up again in a bit like it's a fucked up elevator but um yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's yeah. from that talk about real life experience. That's a good yeah. place to have a panic attack because especially in like claustrophobic spaces, you feel like you're like, I can't get out. Like it's, it's hard to breathe. You're like coughing. That gives me anxiety for you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fun. I take it every day. So. <laughs> wow. Wow. But I live on a six floor walk up. So, you know, it's like, what is, <laughs> do I want to be lazy? Or... Yeah. Yeah. 
So when we were talking uh, leading up to this podcast interview, we were talking about some some books and some movies, and you brought up a few movies. It Comes at Night and Baba Duke and St. Maud. And I know that you and Spencer had a an IG live talk about St. Maud and really went into that and nerded out about it. And I, I enjoyed that movie too. It was crazy. It, I, I think that it, it mixes two of my favorite subgenres. It mixes religious horror with psychological horror. But then Babadook, that movie is horrifying i i think it's horrifying there are a few scenes in that movie that really have stuck with me but underneath it when you understand what that movie is actually talking about Mm -hmm. it is so deep and powerful yeah and and just oh man so when you first watched babadook did did it click what was being discussed there because for me it didn't it took a few watches before before i realized what was going on I think it did subtly. I think it clicked more so at the end when I realized you never really like get to see the villain. And it was just like clearly a sort of like symbolism for something else, all of this. Like like there was like the whole caricature and stuff, but they never really like showed up as like killing machine or like something that was actually like plaguing them. Um, so I thought it was, I don't know. I like, and it, it goes akin to It Comes at Night of the sense of like, the whole fear is like this paranoia or this lack of like having a good relationship or like what have you parenting like Baba Duke. And I don't know if you've seen Eraserhead, um, which is like a completely fucking weird movie, but like, yeah. that also goes with like, you know, the trauma of parenting. And that. I, I couldn't really necessarily know it cause I'm not a parent, but it's, I think those movies are extremely interesting when they take something that's like not a specific experience of like, I don't know, like I went, to this place and I experienced this and there was these certain people around but like something that a lot of people go through like being a parent or I don't know fearing of the unknown and whatnot and taking it and like putting this like horror theme throughout it and then not exactly like exposing you to necessarily an evil being that like for sure is exacting these paranoias or this like issue onto these people but that it's you realize most necessarily like divulging from them themselves um I think it's really cool (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah and the using the theme of grief as almost like a monster and you know as we've been talking about with with nightmares and with writing and and how a lot of the times getting over our fears we have to face the monster you have to contend with it you have to deal with it i just i thought it was really powerful especially when we live in a time where grief is sort of it's almost taboo it's like don't don't ask don't tell Mm -hmm. and i know that especially for i i know that there's there's a stigma especially attached for like men it's like real men don't cry real men don't share show grief that sort of stuff and it's so it's so unhealthy because grief at the end of the day i i truly believe that grief is a natural process and there is no set time. There is no set way of, of grieving or dealing with that. And so the parameters that society tends to put on it 
it's just unhealthy and it leads to a, a lot of negative effects and a lot of negative things. And, and I'm, I, I was wondering this very thing when I was writing that short story breach that I mentioned earlier was, did I maybe not process these deaths when I was younger because there was the understanding that, you know, I'm, I'm a boy and I'm transitioning into being a man and I need to get over it. You know, my mom can cry, but I can't, I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I was too young to, to really understand that. But I, I think that grief pops up a lot within the horror genre because of that. I, I my favorite novel of all time is Pet Cemetery. And I know it's very dark, it's very bleak, but the themes of death and grief, King shows no fear to just put them front and center and uncover them. And I think that there is a, a power and even a healthiness to that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think grief horror is a pretty big subgenre of horror. Um, and and horror has a wide array of subgenres. And I actually know a few people or I've known of a few people that have told me, you know, like, I want grief horror recommendations. Like, I love grief horror. That's like my favorite genre. So it's 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 something that like exists and I think is definitely like a subgenre of horror. Um, I think it's it goes back to the whole like catharsis of like reading through like other grief stories and whatnot and kind of like dealing with your own. Because, yeah, I think grief definitely like or emotion in general, like we have a really big problem as a society of being okay with like showing emotion mm-hmm. um and i think it comes out in like our artwork and what people like to consume because it's like well if i can't experience it then i might as secondhand i might as well secondhand or vicariously um, experience it so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you seen many i'll just ask have you seen either mike flanagan's the haunting of hill house Bly manor or midnight mass I have rewatched Haunting of Hill House like three times. I want to rewatch Blind Manor and I have seen uh, Midnight Mass. I love, oh my God. Wow, what's the name of the director? I forget his name right now. Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan, yeah. I like anything he puts out or his production company puts out, like I will watch immediately. I'm obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that he he is very good about mixing in grief horror. I cried on all three of those. Mm-hmm. and it's just oh man it, it, it's a gut punch and it's heart-wrenching he just does such a good job and and yeah there is it's sad and it makes you cry makes your heart hurt a little bit but like you mentioned earlier there's a catharsis with it whether you're writing it whether you're consuming it and i think that you know maybe it is it's one of those things that because our society has such an unhealthy relationship with these emotions that when we can experience it through a novel or a movie or a show that it just it fills something in our soul that we're not getting elsewhere yeah i think oh my gosh i like could fangirl all day like definitely that style of like storytelling and stuff is like an aspirational like writing style that i want of mine yeah exactly um i think it's just like I don't know it kind of like reminds you that you're human and that you're allowed to feel and like I don't like necessarily I like I wouldn't say I'm someone who like likes to listen to sad music and cry but like listening or watching those shows like it definitely like I don't know I guess we like need period of grief sometimes for like whatever therapeutic reason it might be like it just like feels good to experience that emotion and be reminded that you like have it yeah um, it's weird because you wouldn't think so because it's like, well, why would I want to feel sad? But it's like, you can't be happy all the time. Like, you know, that'd be kind of fucking crazy. So, um, yeah, 
it's it's a strange like relationship to have with such a sad genre but like i'm obsessed like it's yeah. I don't think I could watch it all the time. Like I would definitely go right. into like an extreme depression. I yeah. remember this is like completely off topic, um, not off topic, but off like subject is that um, Radiohead, like a lot of their music is very depressing. And I had a friend whose boyfriend was for whatever reason, for like a couple weeks, like very down and like depressed and whatnot and like didn't know why. And a month before that, she had taken him to Radiohead concert and he fell in love with the band. And then he started playing them like that was all he would listen to. And he was like a coder. So he just like listened to Radiohead all the time. And she was like, have you been listening to anything other than Radiohead? And he was like, uh, no, not really. And she was like, well, maybe you should like change it up a little bit. And it was like that was like the reason <laughs> it's like too much is a bit excessive and might not be like the best too little i think is a little bit like detached but like i do think that we need to like, experience these and that's why those things are popular and even created in the first place because we need some of that experience in our lives yeah yeah no i love that you brought up radiohead i'm a big Radiohead <laughs> fan and yeah that is one of the things that i can thank my brother for i have i have a brother he's a half brother so we have the same mom but different dad and he's 11 years older than me when i was a kid and he was still living at home. There were a lot of things that he would watch and listen to and stuff that was just beyond me. But I do remember finding his CD of OK Computer by Radiohead. Mm -hmm. And I remember listening to that. And that was my first introduction to them. And I've loved them ever since. And, and so I, I definitely have melancholic tendencies. And mm -hmm. one of the best ways for it to show is through the music that I happen to be yeah. listening to. And, and yeah, it's weird. It's like, you know, sometimes I just want to feel a little bit sad and, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I guess once again, it's just, it's, it's fulfilling something that we're not getting somewhere else. And, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I'd rather be able to listen to something like, you know, listen to bright eyes and, and tear up a little bit than actually have, you know, somebody that I know die and have to cry about that. You know, yeah. I don't know. No, <laughs> it's maybe it's, it's fending off the inevitable that, you know, might come in your life <laughs> and you're, it's, I guess maybe it's more about the control. We can control the music that's going into our ears. Yeah. I can see that for sure. I can control when I want to feel sad. Yeah. <laughs> you can't tell me you can't ruin my life when you want to, I'll do that myself under well, my then, terms. <laughs> it, it gets mixed up too, because a lot of this music that is more, you know, melancholy or, you know, emo we then eventually we build up a lot of nostalgia with it. And so it's that sad music and lyrics that are coming in, but we still have those good feelings from the nostalgia. Yeah. All right. So it has now come the time in this show where I'm going to take you to a place that I take every guest and that is to the carpenter shed. <laughs> And in the carpenter shed, I just have one simple question. What is your favorite John Carpenter movie? Oh, oh my God. You know, what's funny is as writers, we're always like, I have such this like poser effect or I feel like what is it? Imposter syndrome or whatnot. And I never necessarily felt like that as a writer, but I have as like a horror fan because I have only seen one John Carpenter movie and it is Halloween. And, and I liked it. I loved it. Uh, I think I saw parts I walked in on like parts of a Halloween 4 showing or something like that that I was like what the fuck is happening here it was like towards <laughs> the end um, so like I guess by default I would have to say Halloween 
but yeah it's it's the only one i've seen so i, I have been really wanting to see the thing like that's been like top of my mm. list like I'm, I'm desperate the problem is is that i'm a little bit of a slave to like what is showing on streaming sites that i pay for at the time because i'm not totally looking to spend bucks on other shows out or tv out or movies outside of that because it's like i'm already spending like money on these streaming services i'll watch what's available through there so a bit of my fault a bit of the streaming services fault they need to get more carpenter shit up on there but um yeah it's it's only halloween so therefore default halloween well at least you've seen the best one in my opinion there you go yeah that's (laughs) that's my favorite as well and do you have netflix do you have a netflix subscription Mm mm-hmm well, they just added Christine on there. So if you oh, want to see a Carpenter film, and it's a great adaption, great adaption. Yeah, I feel like I get like this so stubbornly, but it's like I need to read the book first, and I haven't read that book. <laughs> so maybe I'll like, I get maybe that. I'll binge read it so that because I'm just like, don't ruin my perception of this great like storytelling <laughs> writing with you know screen stuff and sometimes the screen stuff's amazing and like I, I watched The Shining before I read The Shining and I still view them as like completely different stories um, so like it can depend as well on just like how the adaptation is but I, I will check it out but I might have to binge read Christine first. <laughs> <laughs> okay well I'll I'll try to keep my eyes peeled and whenever I, I see a John Carpenter movie popping onto Definitely. one of the streaming sites I'll message if you, you see the know. thing let me know because I've been hunting okay all right. I'll like I watched that. Lost Boys yesterday because and I hadn't seen it before because I just realized that they put it up on Netflix until the end of May. So I was like, oh, get, get, get it down the list. Check it off. So I yeah. saw that. I saw that. And 13 Ghosts. Yes. I love 13 Ghosts. That was the second time. I love Matthew Lillard. Like he could do no wrong. He yes. is like perfect. <laughs> Saint. Yeah. He's another one of those people, too, who just doesn't age. Yeah, or like he does a little bit, but like nicely. Like I don't know, it's like fine wine. (laughs) But yeah, no, he's great. He was actually at I was at Connecticut um, Horror Fest um, last September, and he was there with Ski Ulrich um, doing a signing. And I didn't get to see them because I was tabling them, tabling at the the Mm -hmm. fair. But my friends had come with me and they like saw him from a distance. And they were like, his mannerisms were like so nice. And they're obsessed with him too, but because of Scooby-Doo. But um, they were like, his mannerisms are so nice. And he seems like so cool. And he was like hugging people and he was so kind and stuff. So it's like, I don't know, he just seems like a cool dude. Genuinely nice gentleman. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at least you had a good excuse. You were doing author things. You were signing and selling books, right? Yeah. I, I should have taken a break just to go hug him. <laughs> The line was like freaking two hours long. I was like, oh, cannot. But yeah, yeah, that's stressful. Next time, next time, Matthew Lillard, I'm coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, allow me to take you by the hand. We're leaving the carpenter shed and we are going to the King's Corner. And in the King's Corner, I want to ask you, Mona, what is your favorite Stephen King book? And then also, what is your least favorite Stephen King book favorite hands down the stand um I definitely have a lot more Stephen King's to read but I think that will still just always be my favorite because the like talk about psychological horror like the man developed an entire cat like an entire world cast and like fully fleshed them out and they were like the most realistic well like 
I mean, granted, you have like thousands plus pages to do it, but just like it felt like they were for sure real. And a lot of people when you're or a lot of the characters when you're reading do feel real. But it was just like, I don't know, the intensity of which these ones felt real was insane. And I thought that it was so cool that they all came from like different mindsets. Like you had some like pure evil, some like kind of evil, but maybe with good intentions, but perhaps without you had some like, like, you know, like the lawful good versus like the lawful evil versus like chaotic good like it felt like it came from like every one of those like blocks and i think that it was i don't know the story was insane like and especially like going into COVID, i was like i'm looking writing like this isn't like the stand like it's not the same but it was like people were terrified because it was something that like could very well happen hopefully not to that degree but it was like it's a scary story too so I just think that that's like a fantastic piece of work and I've been dying to read it again but Mm. considering it's what is it like 1500 pages like it's freaking whole ass newborn baby so it's like I have to like really pay attention to like am I ready to commit to like probably what's going to be two months of like getting through this um so I I do want to reread it again but we will see when that comes about um my least favorite is uh Needful Things I really don't like that story i think and like not to say put like a stance on this or anything i just didn't appreciate the way like the women were portrayed necessarily in that story i didn't like the whole like elvis thirst i was a little bit like this seems very shallow in comparison to like (laughs) what like men i can't even remember what the men wanted that's how like severe it was that i was just like nope everyone just wants to fuck elvis like it just like kind of like took it away from me um i thought there were like some there was that one scene that was a little bit like unnecessary like i don't know why king does that with these weird like sex scenes i don't think anyone knows but we're just like ah, we love them anyways so it's fine but like i just like i didn't really get much out of the story i think it was shadowed by just like the portrayal of what the women mainly wanted like polly was the only one who was like kind of relatable and like she just wanted to like not have arthritis and like be in pain and stuff which is a very human thing but it was like everyone else was just like so bizarre so I don't know. And then like the ending seemed a little brash to me. Not that like you can't have these like out of the blue endings. I think they're very cool, but I think I just like was having a negative experience with it to begin with that. I just like didn't appreciate very much where it was like going from there. And I totally like, it's an amazing concept. It's like a very fucking cool and unique concept. Like I absolutely appreciate that. And his writing is fantastic. I will never say a bad word about his writing. It was just like the characters of that one just didn't like fit for me. And it like left a bad taste in my mouth. But like every, like, you know, other Kings are great. It's not like it ruins like entire. Yeah. You know, everybody has their weaknesses. And if, if you're going to point out one of Kings, it is, yeah, sometimes his portrayal of women or his descriptions of, young girls like you know i'm reading it right now i know yeah we're all i was like about to say like you know what i'm talking about yeah why'd you do this (laughs) you just you just had to not but it's you know he's the artist so yeah yeah but i I get what you're saying too about the end of that book because it's it felt like stephen king as the author was almost sort of just sick and of of castle rock he was done writing stories in castle rock so he's like how can i get out of ever being asked to write another one i'm gonna blow it up you know yeah always i know but like sometimes it fits like the shining and with it like the book makes sense but it was like with that one i was like you just needed gone like right out of the like stratosphere like out of the blue yeah second leland gone and the next second 
he's on a chariot. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? So I don't know. It, um, it, and like I said, I really appreciate the concept. I think it's like a, like a seriously cool concept. Um, and I do appreciate it for that. I just like, I wouldn't reread it again. Yeah. No, I agree. I have mixed feelings on that book. I did. I love the character of Leland Gaunt. Um, yeah he was really cool yeah and it's like some characters you could take away from it and like appreciate but i was just like what can i get like one other woman who isn't just like i need that those what was it like his glasses or a photo of him of like elvis i'm like i don't know it was just like too much yeah it was a bit it was a bit long for my liking but Yeah. yeah you know you can't the writing is still there you know the 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 king voice is still there and even His writing is i know oh good it's i envious it's like i don't know how i find it so cool that someone could write not like simple and like the like silly aspect but like easy to like understand and like flowing sentences whilst like still projecting so much imagery it's like reading butter it's insane yeah yeah. yeah, he's he's got a gift. He's got a gift. <laughs> All right. Well, we've we've made it to the end, and I have one final question to ask you. And this one is this is for our listeners. So, what are three psychological horror books that you want to recommend to our listeners? Cool. So, I would say American Psycho. Um, if you've watched the movie but haven't read the book it's like an extremely different experience um they're both like this kind of like character study of our main character there but the book is like disgusting so i would highly suggest reading it last house on needless street by katriana ward i think was like just a fun really like fantastic true crime-esque vibe although like not exactly true crime but like also dive into psych horror and then i'm thinking of ending things is a very like mind-warping twist of a story i read it in like a day i think it's like 300 pages though but it's it's a very like enrapturing read so those would be uh and i'm thinking of ending things is by ian reed so yeah those would be my three suggestions all right cool well those are three suggestions for me i I haven't read those and i am one of those people that you just mentioned that i've seen american psycho but i haven't read the book so you have to read it it's it's wretched it's honestly like disgusting like it's really like oof it's gory. <laughs> it's great though. All right. All right. Yeah. I, I saw it. It kept popping up like at the end of last year, I kept seeing it pop up everywhere. And so I, I put it on my, my TBR. So I think they released a new print of the book last year, which might be uh, why if I'm, if I'm correct, I don't know though. Um, all right. But yeah, no, definitely suggest you should read it. <laughs> Where can listeners connect with you? Where can they find out more about your work? So I have a website moralityandhorror.com um you can also like honestly where i'm most active and like will respond to dms is morality and horror on instagram if you just like type my name into mona Cabani, you'll like find it in the search bar as well um so that's like the best place to like contact me or learn more about me in terms of like where you can buy my books they're available on amazon in kindle and paperback vanilla has a hardback version too she's the only one that does right now um but you can also message me on morality and horror if you want and i do sell signed copies if i have them in stock so if you're looking for like a signed edition feel free to dm me all right i i have got a a signed edition oh i didn't even open the right page 
<laughs> so yeah, definitely, definitely check out moralityandhorror.com. Get you a signed copy of a Mona Cavani original book. <laughs> well, Mona, it has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this discussion and I just want to thank you for entering into the gloom. Thank you again for having me. We hope this episode haunts your nightmares. It's been an honor to scare you. Be sure to subscribe and also follow Into the Gloom podcast on Instagram for news on upcoming offerings. Until we meet again, remember to leave a light on. <laughs>